The UN says that humanity stands on the brink of catastrophic man-made climate change. But is it true? Not a chance. But we do stand on the brink of catastrophic government policies that threaten to ruin the nation our forefathers built and defended against tyranny. So what drives the climate scare, Jay? Besides simple ignorance, the scare is driven by corporate greed and the desire of governments to control all aspects of our lives, Tom. Is this part of something more sinister? Indeed it is. Whether it's climate change or a pandemic or socialism, it really means sacrificing your rights and accepting the tyranny of the fourth branch of government, the bureaucracy. It must be stopped. This is The Other Side of the Story with Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris of the International Climate Science Coalition. Particulate matter pollution consists of very small particles suspended in air. One kind, called PM2.5, consists of soot and dust particles that are 2.5 micrometers or less in diameter. That is about one ten thousandth of an inch, far less than the thickness of a human hair. These particles come from nature, such as from forest fires, volcanoes, and pollen, as well as from human activities such as smokestack or tailpipe emissions, fireplaces, and smoking. Until the 1990s, this small particulate matter air pollution wasn't thought to kill anyone. But everything changed when Bill Clinton came to the White House. The Clinton Environmental Protection Agency and the researchers it funds started claiming that small particulate matter air pollution was lethal. Today, the EPA asserts that any inhalation of PM2.5, even one molecule, can cause death and that death may occur within hours or even decades of inhalation. My guest today, Steve Malloy, a widely recognized leader in the fight against junk science, will speak about whether these fears are justified or just yet another EPA scandal. Steve was the founder and publisher of JunkScience.com. Steve has a natural sciences BA and a master of health sciences with a focus on biostatistics, both from John Hopkins University. He also has a Juris Doctorate from the University of Baltimore and a Master's of Law from Georgetown University. Steve has a wide background as an environmental and public health consultant, a biostatistician, a securities lawyer, a columnist on science and business issues, and even a coal company executive. He has served on the EPA transition team for the Trump administration. Besides over 600 articles published in leading media outlets, Mr. Malloy has authored six books, his most recent being the number one bestseller, Scare Pollution, Why and How to Fix the EPA. That book goes into detail about much of what we will discuss today, and we'll link to Scare Pollution when the program goes to podcast on Monday. So welcome to the show, Steve. Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you on. So, Steve, why has the EPA been so irrational in requiring standards that have no positive health impact, which are then supported by once-respected professional associations? Yeah. Well, I tell you, uh, Tom, I've been working on EPA issues for more than 30 years now, since uh, November of 1990, when the Clean Air Act was last amended in a serious way. And I have never seen EPA or environmentalists do anything correct, scientific, or true in on all those years. The very first thing I worked on, uh, which I talked a little bit about scare pollution, um, 
was bogus. And, you know, with this whole PM 2.5 issue, uh, my God, it's like junk science, dishonesty, fraud on steroids. Yeah, it's amazing. And the EPA seems to get everything backwards. I mean, we talk about, you know, the uh, climate scare and carbon pollution. I mean, it's pretty ridiculous. Now, your book, Scare Pollution, documents their discovery of data supporting their own PM 2.5 ruling, but you're saying that it's incorrect. Yeah, uh, well, um, you know, no one ever thought that PM 2.5 or, you know, this fine particulate matter that's in the air was dangerous until EPA uh, invented it as such. And that happened in the early 1990s uh, as EPA was running out of air to clean. For sure, our air was uh, much dirtier than it is today, you know, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, just through, you know, industrialization and a few environmental standards, really sort of an, un, you know, not no awareness of the environment. And so the air was, was dirty. Uh, that said, it wasn't too much of a public health problem. There, are, there have been a couple of times in the 20th century, a few times, um, when the combination of, uh, you know, unrestrained emissions, and temperature inversions have caused, you know, a small number of deaths. But generally speaking, air pollution it has not been dangerous, and certainly not PM two point five. But in the uh, during the Clinton administration, EPA came out with this claim that this fine particulate matter PM two point five was killing people, and they used that to justify some of the most stringent. Uh, air quality standards, well, the most stringent air quality standards that EPA had, had ever issued, uh, standards that were going to cost, I think, you know, like $100 billion a year, cost the economy $100 billion a year, which was a lot in the 1990s. You know, I got into it. I, uh, as a biostatistician, um, you know, I looked at the epidemiology that EPA was claiming. Uh, the epidemiology was not very good. Uh, later on. Um, so, you know, we got, through the Clinton, we got through the Clinton administration, Bush administration. During the Bush administration, EPA, which of course uh, has got its own agenda, it's not doing, it, it's not in sync with, you know, a Republican controlled White House. They're starting to claim that PM 2.5 is killing hundreds of thousands of people a year. I mean, it, it, during the Clinton years, it was 15,000 Americans per year. Then during the Obama years, it became 570,000. Oh, man. Which is a lot. You would think people would notice this, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's one out of five deaths in America caused by <laughs> air quality. Just, you know, and not yeah. only air quality, blue sky air. And the whole thing got really crazy because, you know, during those years, EPA said that any exposure to PM 2.5, even one molecule, any exposure could cause death virtually immediately, or if you died, you know, 80 years later, it could be the cause of your death mm -hmm. you know, in, a, in a cumulative fashion. So, and, and of course, <laughs> you know, this, this intrigued me because what it meant was PM 2.5 was the most toxic substance on the planet because there's no, there's <laughs> no other molecule where one molecule will kill you. I mean, you can, you know, botulinum, uh, ricin, <laughs> you know, there's nothing where one molecule will kill you, cyanide, there's nothing where one molecule will kill you, yeah. and kill you in this bizarre way, either right away, or, you know, after a lifetime of inhaling it, it can kill you then. Mm -hmm. 
no one else was really interested in pursuing this. So I pursued it myself <laughs> and, you know, the result was scare pollution. So I went through, you know, the history of PM 2.5 and the epidemiology and the real life experience with PM 2.5. And then I had this really interesting information I developed through the Freedom of Information Act about EPA's human tests with PM2 oh, experiments, right. which were illegal. If it was true that even one molecule of PM2.5 could kill you, then obviously EPA's human experiments with PM2.5 were, you know, axiomatically illegal. Can you describe those, those tests? The, the reason for the tests is because, you know, when EPA first started regulating PM2.5, they claimed that the epidemiology linked PM2.5 with death. And for those people that don't know epidemiology, which maybe you're familiar with now because of COVID, epidemiology is the study of disease in actual human populations. It's not science, it's just statistics because you're just looking for correlations between exposure and outcomes. Mm -hmm. So EPA said that, you know, the epidemiology showed that PM2.5 killed. Now, um, you know, I'm a biostatistician and I know that that wasn't true. I could go and bore your audience, but I won't. It just wasn't true. The, the, the evidence was, you know, EPA was trying to claim there was a correlation between inhaling PM 2.5 and death when, in fact, there was no correlation. But that aside, you know, the basic problem with it, it was just statistics. And mm-hmm. you know, to, to establish a cause and effect relationship, you must have more than statistics. You have to have some sort of medical evidence to bolster it. You know, someone, you got to show me someone who is dying, who has died from PM 2.5. Right. So EPA knew this as well. I mean, I wasn't, you know, this is not rocket science. This is if you do this kind of work, you know that epidemiology is just statistics. So uh, EPA tried to back up their epidemiology with these human experiments, which would be sort of, you know, scientific medical proof that PM 2.5 killed people. Now, why would EPA try to kill people? Because that would be illegal. (laughs) Even (laughs) the Nazis didn't try to kill people. I mean, they want to see what happened. But, yeah. uh, but EPA is saying that even one molecule can kill someone and they're doing these experiments. So, you know, I, I uncovered this just by accident. Um, and I filed the Freedom of Information Act request. And I found that, oh, my God, this has been going on for quite a while. And EPA was testing various air pollutants, including PM 2.5 in various forms, diesel, wood smoke. They were exposing children as young as 10 years old to it. They mm-hmm. were exposing adults as old as 80. Uh, they were exposing it to, they were exposing uh, older adults who were asthmatics or had, you know, like heart disease. I mean, they were really, really, uh, you know, desperate to try to find some medical proof that PM 2.5 hurt somebody. And of course they never did. So did they have like a gas chamber or something? Yes, <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> what they had. And, and and uh, I didn't include these pictures on in scare pollution, but I have them on junkscience.com because they were very proud of this. They had a 21st century looking <laughs> gas chamber and outside the gas chamber, outside the building, they brought, you know, a, uh, a truck with a diesel engine and they mm-hmm. piped the exhaust into the gas chamber. Now, obviously, they wow. took it up the carbon, di- carbon monoxide because that would kill people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But, but they, they, they took the particulate matter that came out of the diesel exhaust and they piped that into the chamber. And these people were sitting there being exposed to extremely high levels 
mm-hmm. of particulate matter. Just to give you an idea, you know, uh, the average particulate matter in the U.S. today is like nine millionths of a gram per cubic meter. And like, would that uh, be the case in the room I'm in now, for example? You might have more because of just the dust and if you have pets or things like that. Yeah. Uh, but out, outdoor in a blue sky day, well, we won't get into that, but just uh, the average particulate matter level in the U.S. and Canada is probably about not less than 10 for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and EPA was exposing these people to 750 oh, micrograms <laughs> per cubic meter, and yeah. which, is, which is about the level of particulate matter on a on a on the worst uh day in china for example <laughs> yeah so, so not a lot, lot and they would expose them for two hours they'd be inhaling this air yeah they must have got sick no no one got sick from the particulate matter because okay. it was it was never harmful to start with so they were disappointed and you know, I, I, uh, I wound up suing EPA over these experiments and in some of their court filings, you know, this is where they admit that, yeah, the epidemiology doesn't really, you know, in court, they admit that epidemiology doesn't really show anything. And that's why they were doing human experiments, which is kind of an admission that they're really just trying to hurt people. You know, you can see this is a really twisted story and you can see why people, it's hard for people to follow because it's just so convoluted. It's hard to believe that, you know, governments are doing this. Mm-hmm. It's happening in Canada. I mean, the, I think, I believe it was University of Toronto is doing some of these experiments. They may have been funded by EPA. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was just bizarre. And so, you know, I tried to get Congress involved and, you know, eventually this, what, what this led to in the Trump administration was uh, the complete sort of debunking of the PM 2.5 myth during the Trump administration. You know, the, the EPA's um, outside bot, body of science advisors responsible for reviewing EPA science said, look, this is all nonsense. <laughs> now, why wasn't Trump able to undo it? Well, uh, because... The EPA staff, uh, you know, they were part of the so-called resistance. I mean, they have their their own agenda, you know, unlawful. They think they know what's right. EPA, uh, as long as I've been working on these issues, and that is, you know, 30, 32 years now, mm-hmm. uh, has always been out of control. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, the Trump administration, you know, our, our transition team was really strong. Uh, we had team members. We knew what was wrong with EPA. We issued these plans. But, you know, of course, the appointees are always, you know, sort of political and very weak and very scared. And, you know, they did a lot of what we wanted to do, but not everything. And then, you know, they don't necessarily know how to defend things because they don't really understand it to start with because they're just politicians. I mean, this is the problem with conservatives and the environment. I mean, conservatives mm-hmm. don't really understand the environment. I, I, they, they just don't. I mean, you know, the environment is, I guess, overcomplicated for them. You know, there's water, mm-hmm. air, waste, uh, soil, you know, agriculture. You know, you've got science and statistics and economics. And it's just, it's overwhelming for a lot of people. You know, everyone cares, says they, they say they care about the environment, but a few people actually take the time to learn anything about it. Yeah, um, I was never really understand. interested in the environment. My question, you know, I'm sure that listeners would have, is why would anybody agree to be a guinea pig for this sort of test? Oh, well, because they get paid. Oh, okay. 
EPA was paying these people, uh, you know, as much as a thousand dollars. You uh, come sit for two hours, uh, inhale air for two hours, and you come yeah. back two weeks later, inhale a different type of air, either you know cleaner air or dirtier air, mm-hmm. and you know uh, maybe take a blood test, then you know you get tw- you know eleven hundred, twelve hundred dollars for it. Yeah, I see. It's important to note that you know this. They, they, these are. Uh, they, they were doing this to college students, you know, people that really don't know any better and poor people, people that are, you know, desperate for the money. I uncovered one set of experiments where EPA was spraying diesel exhaust up the noses of children as, as young as 10 years old in California. Oh, it was done by UCLA researchers and USC researchers at, you know, hospitals that, that they were at. And, you know, uh, I mean, I don't have documentary proof of this, but I know that these were underprivileged children, probably poor children, parents desperate for the money, you know, and the researchers say, oh, nothing's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they do this. Of course, they, <laughs> you can see the problem, right? I mean, they, to the parents, they say, oh, nothing's going to happen. But they tell the rest of the world that one molecule PM2.5 can kill you. Yeah. So that's kind of ridiculous. I mean, they're telling them it's not a problem, but then they're testing to try to prove that it's a problem. Yeah, it's 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 very sick. It's not. It's this is and this is the government doing this. Yeah, it's it was crazy. it was difficult to get people to pay attention to this. I, I you know once again it's it's this you know it, I I, it, I guess it's just too. I tried to make it as simple as possible. I mean I you know pulled out the language from the consent forms to show people what EPA was 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 telling you know the its guinea pigs versus what it told. The, you know, the public and policymakers. And uh, I, I thought it was a fascinating story. And, and, and that was, that's how I got kind of caught up in all this. I started to say earlier, you know, I was never really interested in the environment, but when I started working in the area, what fascinated me was the lying, you know, yeah. ever since I've been fascinated by the lying and there's just so much of it going on. And, and I mean, everything that environmentalists say basically is a lie. Mm-hmm. And um, Emet is the one constant throughout my career. If we go back in time, like in 1981, I went and lived for a little while in Southern California. And I remember sitting in a traffic jam and the horizon was brown. And I had just gotten out of the Canadian Air Force and I had in the back seat a gas mask. So I was sitting there in a traffic jam and I put on the gas mask and nobody looked at me like I was an idiot. Now, the a few years later, well, quite a few years later, I was back and it was much cleaner. And is that the general trend in North America? Well, yeah, uh, air quality has dramatically improved um, since the Clean Air Act was first passed in 1963. And then it's been amended in 1970, 77 and 1990. 1990. So, yes, the air has is as clean as it basically can get at this point. Mm-hmm. Um you know, and, and although the air was brown, and of course, in Los Angeles, the air has always been funny like that, just because Los Angeles is in a basin. When the Spanish conquistadors sailed past Los Angeles in the 16th century, they noted that. Mm-hmm. So Los Angeles air has always been funky. And if you throw in 16 million people driving cars and having all these, of course, you know, the air is going to be worse. So the air has gotten a lot cleaner. But even though it was brown when, when you were there, it wasn't harmful. It wasn't going to hurt you. I mean, you may not have liked it. Yeah. Well, it's going to kill you. 
Yeah. So it's very odd today, you know, EPA today, to this day, I mean, right now they're trying to jam through PM 2.5 regulations where they're so crazy. They've gotten to the point where they're saying that, you know, even cleaner air is causing health problems. You know, like the lack of PM 2.5 in air is is causing problems. I mean, they're totally crazy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's all I can say. This is the most irrational uh, field of study in science ever. Okay. Mm-hmm. I think it makes witchcraft look good. <laughs> just, <laughs> it's readily debunkable. Uh, I mean, I can easily demonstrate that particulate matter uh, harms nobody. It's, it's pretty easy to do. Nevertheless, EPA uh, is set to use PM 2.5 as a backdoor way of regulating uh, CO2 emissions for climate. Oh, is that right? Okay, so this has a climate connection as well, then. Well, yes, it's why that's that was really sort of a, the whole um, the whole point of the Obama administration. How they it was the was the basis for their war on coal, particulate matter. Right. Because they claimed that particulate matter was killing hundreds of thousands of people, and shutting down coal plants was going to save hundreds of thousands of lives every year. And since you know, in EPA land, each premature death avoided is worth $10 million. I mean, you're creating, you know, just you're, you're creating $380 billion in wealth every year by shutting down these coal plants. It's totally false. But oh yeah. so now the Biden administration, you know, it was Obama Biden, now it's Biden Harris. So, you know, they're, they're going back to this playbook, especially now that the Supreme Court has said that, you know, EPA, Congress has not authorized EPA to regulate CO2 from coal plants, but what Congress has authorized EPA to do is to regulate particulate matter from coal plants. Yeah. So EPA wants to use the particulate matter regulations now to, you know, to shut down the remaining coal plants mm-hmm. um, and, you know, other sources. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I have a philosophical question. Often we hear from environmentalists, we have to reduce pollution. We have to reduce pollution. Well, to me, the answer to that is, well, if it's not a real problem, then at some point you don't have to reduce pollution, you know, and it's the same thing with saving energy. I mean, if you have lots of it, like when they're trying to bleed energy off a nuclear station, you don't have to save energy. You know, if you're in Tahiti and it's raining every day and there's waterfalls all around you, you don't have to save water. So the philosophy of always having to reduce pollution, I mean, surely that's wrong. Well, yeah. You know, if, if I didn't say this, you know, you, you had that experience of driving in L.A. putting your gas mask on. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I would tell you that even in the old days of the worst pollution and even in the in, in today's, you know, there's uh, awful pollution in China, air pollution in China and India. Uh, and as awful as that is, it's not a health threat to anybody. It's an aesthetic problem. Uh, people may not like breathe, breathing that stuff. And I don't blame them. But it's not a health problem. No one, no one is dying because there's particulate matter in the air. No one is dying because ozone levels. I mean, the the thing that's a pro- that can be a problem in air is acidic aerosols like sulfur. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the past, when we've had, there have been, you know, during the 20th century, there were three air pollution incidents where uh, people died. In the 1930s in Belgium and in uh, Meuse Valley. Uh, in 1948 in Denora, Pennsylvania. And then there's the London fog of 1952. And in all three of those cases, what you had was, you know, this sort of un, unrestrained emissions of coal emissions with high sulfur coal. Okay. And then there's an air inversion, which traps 
aerosols. And so the air becomes a little bit acidic. And for some people, you know, it's just too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, so mm-hmm. in, in 1930s in, in the Moose Valley, I think 100 people died. In 1948 in North Pennsylvania, 20 people died. And then in London, you know, they say thousands die, but I don't really think that's true. I think there's also a concurrent flu epidemic. It's hard to know. It's, you know, it's possible some people died in London because the air quality is not really clear though. But so, you know, I, I acknowledge people have died in, under these certain circumstances. And in fact, someone died in the United States last year. Uh, they were working in a, uh, they were working on a farm of all places in a, in a manure lagoon for some reason, there was just some cloud of acidic gases. The air got trapped over him and he died, which sort of validates my theory of air pollution, uh, you know, unfortunately for him. Uh, but, but those are the circumstances. So even today in China and India, where you, know, you see the air is black, okay? Yeah. The sulfur dioxide levels are very low. They're always in a safe range. So that air is not deadly. Mm-hmm. So that's why you know, it's, 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 it's an aesthetic problem. And particulate matter, which, you know, just these carbon particles, uh, they don't cause asthma because they're not allergens. Carbon is not, carbon is not an allergen. You know, proteins are allergens like pollen. Yeah, yeah. Nothing that comes out of a tailpipe or a smokestack is a protein. Yeah. So none of those are allergens. So none of those cause asthma. Now, you know, too much of this stuff can cause, can irritate your throat temporarily and you might not like it, but that is not a public health problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting because they point to the London fog as a reason to get rid of coal. But you and I are both great supporters of coal. And, you know, over the years, surely it's become very, very different in com- comparison with what happened in London. Well, yeah, but of course, so, you know, they have the London fog of 1952. But, you know, London burned the same amount of coal in all the other years. <laughs> But nothing happened. There was nothing like that. So what was it about 1952? Well, there was an an influenza epidemic that went through. Okay, so that's why I don't even know that the 1952 deaths were really, I mean, there was an inversion in 1952. Yeah, Uh, I I find it hard to believe it was the first time they had an inversion, but nonetheless, they had the inversion. But, you know, even Acknowledging that, I mean, so what, what happened to all the others? Why, why didn't people die? You know, if air pollution is so dangerous, well, how, how did Los Angeles survive the 1950s and 1960s? <laughs> That's right. Right? Yeah. I mean, the air was pretty bad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we've got to take a break here. So we'll be back with Steve Malloy, the founder and publisher of JunkScience.com, a very important site I encourage readers and listeners to visit. So we'll be back right after the break. We know you love the versatility and portability of the Genesis Fogger, but sometimes you just want to set it and forget it. Well, we heard you. Introducing the UX4 HOCL Atomizer. This stationary unit quietly protects you and is perfect for smaller spaces. With over a quarter million units sold in Japan, it's now available in the United States. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to see the UX4 in action and receive a 15% discount on either Falker with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. These days, every time you turn on the news, it seems like there's a new threat to your health. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Advanced nutrition company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. 
Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. These physician-formulated gels come in a small gel pack. Tear off the top and shoot it down, or mix it in water. Boost your immunity. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. While many things we hear are lies, we know one thing is true. Viruses exist and people get sick. Look, there's no guaranteed way to keep from getting sick, but there is a way to reduce your chances. Cofix RX, the original povidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray that you hear Dr. McCullough talking about, provides an additional invisible layer of protection from colds, flu, coronaviruses, and more. Click the banner ad on americaoutloud.com and use promo code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Stay protected with Cofix RX. For 40 years, alarmists have been warning of a climate catastrophe, yet none of their dire predictions have come true. Temperatures have not soared, sea level rise has not been unusual, and extreme weather events have not increased in either frequency or intensity. In short, there is no climate emergency. For 15 years, the International Climate Science Coalition has led the call for climate realism and a made-in-America climate plan a plan based on real science that responds to the real-world needs of Americans, supports economic growth, and strengthens our essential infrastructure, a plan that protects the environment and ensures that Americans can enjoy the blessings of clean air, clean land, and clean water for generations to come. It's time to put ideology and pseudoscience aside. It's time for a sensible climate plan. For more information or to donate, visit our website, icsc-climate.com Now the spirit of American liberty and justice is woven into the soul of America out loud. Now we invite you friends to invest some of your time with our magnificent family of experts, their minds and voices. It's all back at americaoutloud.com Liberty and justice for all. We're back with Steve Malloy, the founder and publisher of JunkScience.com. He's an expert in the understanding of the real impacts of pollution on human health and what we should be doing or not doing. And that brings up my first question in this second half, uh, Steve. You know, environmentalists act like it's almost like a religion. You always have to reduce pollution. You must, you must, you must. But does that make any sense? No. Uh, you know, it's fundamental uh, toxicology <clears throat> that the dose makes the poison. Right. And so it's not true that any level of whatever contaminant you're interested in is causing a problem. It has to get to a certain dose. We spent a lot of time in the last segment talking about how, you know, a pollution is largely an aesthetic problem. I mean, there's a few, there are very few instances where pollution has caused demonstrable harm. And that's because by and large, you know, the chemicals in the environment are just kind of innocuous. You may not like them there, and it may make sense to reduce some of them. And, and, and this is kind of what really got me interested in this, because, you know, I, I wasn't politicized to start with. 
my, my uh, approach was, okay, if you want to regulate something, that is fine, but why do you have to lie about the science? I mean, mm -hmm. you can say that the science shows that this level of, you know, whatever contaminant is harmful, and then regulate to that point or maybe something a little bit below. But it was never, I mean, environmentalists have turned everything into, you know, any exposure to anything they don't like can cause everything. And, <laughs> you know, most recently I saw this with uh, benzene. You know, there's been some controversy about uh, benzene and some spray-on suntan lotions. And the levels of benzene coming out of these cans are so low, it's just, it's irrelevant. You know, the only people who ever got cancer from benzene, and it's not really clear what caused their cancer, but, you know, for the few people that were, were you know, in this cohort, uh, you know, they were industrial workers uh, from the 40s and 50s where, you know, people often just basically swam in chemicals. And they were also smokers. And even then, only a small minority of those people got sick. So it's it's just not... You know, it's not possible to get cancer from, you know, spray on suntan. It's just not possible. From the, from the yeah. But so it's the dose that makes the poison. Mm -hmm. It's that is that is just the, you know, a, a constant. Now, EPA has tried to get rid of that um, notion, of course, with particulate matter, but also through, you know, there was this ongoing scare in the 90s, 2000s. It's still sort of kicking around uh, endocrine disruptors or environmental estrogens. Yeah. Where, you know, EPA was saying that lower doses were even more dangerous than higher doses. of <laughs> This is very bizarre. Yeah. This is one of those things where conservative uh, disinterest in, in science and environment really comes to, I mean, hurt us because mm -hmm. people who are not scientists easily fall for what the environmentalists say. You know, people are often afraid of chemicals, you know, irrationally mm -hmm. afraid. I, I've been trying to combat that my whole, it's difficult, very mm -hmm. difficult. Well, I, I, I get the impression that they apply, you know, in nuclear radiation, they apply the linear no threshold model where it goes like any amount has some related danger, but uh, that doesn't apply, does it? I mean, it, I know it doesn't apply in radiation, but it clearly doesn't apply in the PMs. You know, well, no, but that's exactly what EPA has done, right? Any exposure mm -hmm. to particulate matter can kill you now or an hour later, <laughs> yeah. it's very well, it's a very bizarre concept. Mm -hmm. Well, so in fact, you could say that constantly reducing pollution is bad for health because it reduces your economic wealth and your ability to actually, you know, have a healthy population because they're broke because they're doing things that are unnecessary. So, in fact, many of these regulations could, in fact, be attributed to um, to reducing health. Couldn't you say that? Oh, sure. Well, yeah. I mean, regulations make you poorer and, uh, you know, poverty is definitely associated with worse health outcomes. But also there's, a, you know, more possibly scientific you know, way to look at this. There's this uh, thing called the hygiene hypothesis where, and we all know this, you know, kids exposed to various diseases, you know, they become immune. It's how they build up their immune systems. Well, yeah. you know, if we, if we make the air just so clean where it's just, I mean, is it, which is impossible to do just pristine people, you know, imagine pristine air, you know, that's not necessarily going to help our immune systems. If you know, you run into air that is not so pristine. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. So how does the California 
air quality board get away with doing this when it's going to cost its own citizens lots of jobs. I just want to tell you a funny story. I went to a government meeting, Ontario government, and different environmentalists were getting up screaming about the air. Now, I had actually brought with me the statistics in, in a graph form that showed how air pollution in Ottawa had been reducing, except for ozone, which had showed a slight rise, but it had been reducing for decades. So they were going on and on about it, and, you know, raising their fists and everything else. And I went to the mic and I said, well, do you realize that air pollution in this area has been dropping for, dec for decades? And of course, everybody was astounded. So I spread after the meeting, I spread my charts all over the table and the Green Party came up and they looked at it and they said, oh, can we take this with us? And it struck me that they were they were actually at this meeting to protest against something and they didn't even realize the basic statistics. So I get the impression that most of the environmentalists are just simply ignorant of what's real. Well, I think all of them are ignorant. Um, you know, the rank and file, all the all the rank and file is ignorant. They just follow. The leaders know. Okay, I mean, they're not stupid. They have the internet. They've they've read my work. They've heard me talk. I have I have interacted with the EPA much. We have had litigation. They know. They know they're lying. They just don't care. Okay, mm. they they are lying for political reasons to gain control. They know that. Uh, yeah, they haven't fooled Steve Malloy or some, a handful of other people, Tom Harris, but they have fooled most people. Yeah. And, and what's their goal? You say it's to control, it's to have power. Yeah. Look, the environment is just part of, you know, the communist progressive left push for absolute power over us. Uh, climate mm -hmm. is the perfect example. Many people who work in climate, admit, you know, it's, they want economic control. It's just control over all of us. Before my book, Scare Pollution, I wrote a book called Green Hell, How Environmentalists Plan to Control Your Life and What You Can Do to Stop Them. And of course, it was all about, you know, they want to tell you where to live, where to work, how many children you can have, what kind of food you should eat, what kind of car you can drive, what kind of electricity you can have, what kind of appliances you can have in your home. How many children you can have. Yeah, that's the I mean, one. just everything, right? Yeah. Uh, they, they want to run your life. Mm -hmm. uh, every part of your life and, th and they don't even and of course it's hard to manage all those people they don't even want most of us here right you know Paul Ehrlich wrote in the 1960s the carrying capacity of the earth was two billion yeah <laughs> uh, I ran across a Washington Post article this morning where they're talking about four billion people of course we have eight billion so they want half of us to get off yeah yeah <laughs> and, yet we're and yet we're healthier now than ever we have yeah, a higher so standard of living than ever so, so these people, right? So these people are 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 very they're very sick and disturbed people. Uh, I I can only uh, imagine the rank and file are just ignorant. You know, mm -hmm. They get propagandized now as soon as they get into the public school system. Uh, if you read the newspaper, you get propagandized. If you watch TV, you know. If you listen to businesses, businesses want to be woke, politically correct, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, unless you come to junkscience.com or, you know, what your group does or there's a handful of other groups out there, you know, it's really hard to come by what the reality is. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Well, so, you know, I always thought the government had some sort of requirement, some sort of rules which require them to do cost benefit analysis on regulatory actions. So, you know, how is it possible that they can continue with this? When the cost benefit well, that's a great that's a great question, Tom. Because <clears throat> you're right. When I first started out in this business, 
you could hope to uh, derail EPA initiatives with, with cost-benefit analysis. You know, they have they should have to show that the benefits of their regulation are going to exceed the cost. In fact, I broke into this business with the guy that wrote the executive order on cost-benefit analysis for Ronald Reagan. So this has always been a very you know, close issue. But over the years, EPA figured out how to game it, and they have you know gamed it to the max with particulate matter. You know, so EPA says that you know particulate matter from coal plants was killing hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, EPA values and puts monetary value on everybody's life of ten million dollars, and this yes. is despite the fact that if you're a soldier and you get killed, your life is only worth a hundred thousand dollars to the government, right? And as far as EPA is concerned, if you're if you're a hundred years old and you know you die Thursday instead of Friday, you know that's also worth ten million dollars. So EPA has this you know this, this myth that human lives are worth ten million dollars. Well, you, if you've made up, fabricated out of whole cloth this notion that coal plants are killing hundreds of thousands of people per year, and then you multiply each death by ten billion dollars, well, you have gained the cost-benefit analysis so that there's there's no industry analysis that that can defeat that right i mean yeah. it's you know much greater than gdp mm -hmm. uh, epa had it so that just one of the obama war coal rules was uh, going to create 2.5 percent of gdp every year okay <laughs> that is crazy yeah yeah you know i get the impression that they purposely choose standards that are so difficult to meet that they will never actually achieve these standards. And so they can constantly apply pressure. You know, for well, example, it's not too hard to reduce pollution from a coal station, but to reduce CO2 and to sequester it. Well, I can remember various coal experts were saying, well, that means no coal. So it sounds to me like they purposely choose standards that are so high that they can't be accomplished. And they know that. Well, so, and, and, and that brings us back to particulate matter. Because if, if your position is that any exposure to particulate matter can kill anyone now or at some point in the future. Yeah. Um, of course, you cannot eliminate particulate matter. I mean, we've gotten it down pretty low. Yeah. Uh, you know, nine or 10 <laughs> millionths of a gram per cubic, you know. But if, it, if, if you have to have zero, well, you can't do that. Yeah. Well, you can't have it even if you, you don't know, have a station. <laughs> interesting experiment. If you can do this, at, you know, listeners can do this at home. Get a, uh, an air cleaner that has a PM 2.5 monitor on it. You know, if you have a walk-in closet, put it there, <laughs> walk yeah. past it and you can, and, and uh, I, you know, EPA science says that you should be dead every time you walk past the, uh, uh, <laughs> the air cleaner because the monitor, or if, you, if you're folding clothes, putting them away or just changing, changing clothes, uh, you can see how the particulate matter in your own house varies. Mm -hmm. And all this, according to EPA, which should kill you. <laughs> yeah. So how should the average listener fight back? I mean, what should they do? Oh, my God. You know, I've been asked this question for so long. All I can say is, if you're really interested in the environment, if you're worried about it, you've really, I hate to say, you, you, you got to do your own research. Uh, I mean, I've done a lot of research for you. Uh, other people have, um, you know, the internet is this huge thing. And the wonderful thing is it's pretty easy to find research. If you have questions, ask people, mm -hmm. um, you don't need to be afraid. Yeah. There are not many people that are really interested in learning about this stuff. There are people would just rather be scared. Mm. And I guess to some extent they figure a better safe than sorry. Why yeah. worry about it? Just, you know, 
And so the environmentalists um, have a real advantage that way because they know that people are just, just you know, not 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 many people have the curiosity sufficient to figure this out. And a lot of people will just say, oh, and this is kind of the business attitude. Well, let's just stop doing it. Mm -hmm. uh, and these people will go away. Of course they won't. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, there's studies in the United States and Canada, actually, which show that, you know, politicians are constantly saying, well, we can't say those things until the public support it. But these studies are showing that what the public agree to and support is largely dictated by what the leaders in these political parties say. And they were giving an interesting example when John McCain and others on the Republican side were in favor of the climate scare, that they were actually you know, thinking that CO2 was important to really uh, reduce, then the public at large had much more support for climate change mitigation projects. But when the Republicans were saying, no, this is wrong, this is nonsense, et cetera, that the public support became a lot lower. So it strikes me, it strikes me that politicians have to recognize the role they play in helping determine public opinion. Well, yeah. So, you know, my goal over all these years is really to kind of, you know, you can't defeat the environmentalists because they just, they own every institution in the world and including the media, they have the biggest megaphone and it's just nonstop and you can't, it's a very difficult to fight. But what you can do is politicize these issues. You can try to educate people on your side and what you're saying, you know, as soon as the issue becomes politicized, well, at least it's politicized. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's, you know, that's kind of a, it's a, it's an unfortunate way to have to, you know, go about this. It's uh, you know, you could call it cynical, but I don't know, since nobody wants to spend the time to learn about this stuff and the other side has no integrity and the government, you know, has no integrity. You know, Tom, think about this. How does how did these people ever walk anything back, you know, about about the environment or about climate? What does Al Gore say? Oops, I was wrong. What, how do they walk this back? How do the government agencies, how do the universities, what is Harvard University going to do? Oh, we were wrong? Mm -hmm. Really? Yeah. Well, um, that would that would be a scientific response. I mean, scientists often say they're wrong when they're being honest, you know, and so. Well, OK, but yeah, that's ethically. Well, even for scientists, I mean, scientists, it's difficult to, to be wrong. I mean, nobody likes to be wrong. Scientists are, you know, people I've always said this about scientists. You know, people get really impressed with scientists, you know, because they wouldn't lie. Well, you know, scientists are just people. Yeah. They're honest people. They're a liar. There are good people, there are bad people. And the same is true with scientists. You can't just, because someone's a scientist and has a study, you can't just believe them. You've got to figure this out for yourself. Yeah. And unfortunately, we don't have a system anymore. You know, the, the entire, you know, science has been corrupted by government. Well, and you know, there's one group of people you would expect, especially for this particle PM 2.5 issue, you would expect trade groups to really fight against it because it would really damage their members. But you don't see them fighting these terrible regulations. Well, Why you, is that? you know, you know, a, a leading scientist from a very large oil company shall remain nameless. You know, and I know this just from my own experience, but, um, you know, he made it quite clear to me. If you if you object to what EPA is doing, they will not invite you to meetings. If you're a large company and EPA regulates you on air, water, waste, whatever, you may win on the air issue. I mean, you may fight EPA on the air issue and win, but you know what? The agency has a memory and they're going to get you. They're going to, there's going to be revenge delivered in some other area. Mm -hmm. So a lot of companies 
with the PM 2.5 issue, <clears throat> Uh, they don't, they're, they're not really for good science. They like PM 2.5 regulation because it helps them sell more, more expensive equipment. And what I'm talking about is the automakers, truck makers, engine makers. Yeah, they reduce competition. Mm -hmm. right? They reduce competition by having these really stringent standards. Mm -hmm. So, well, you know, it's, 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 a, it's very – when I started out – uh, I, I could have uh, business clients or, you know, if I was in a nonprofit, you could get businesses to support you because you'd be fighting for good science. But mm -hmm. that's not the case anymore. This is all about um, how much money can I make, whatever, you know, if it's if it's bad science that works for me, well, that's what I'm going to go with. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like the average person can't rely on the trade associations to stand up against this. You can't rely on the universities to do it. You can't rely on most of the politicians. So it does come down to the citizen. If they're concerned, they should go to their council meetings and do what we did here in Ottawa, where they actually quiz the people on council. We quiz the people throughout the election, ask them hard questions. And it uh, sounds like the people should basically get together and do more of that. They should challenge the authorities and ask them the hard questions and uh, call into radio talk shows. It sounds like it's a great opportunity for individuals to start to stand up. Yeah, I, well, you, you know, um, that, that's right. And you've got to, people need to be educated. People need to be aggressive. You need to mock uh, these environments. You know, you need to figure out what's going on and then figure yeah. out how to mock them for what they're doing. I mean, you, you I don't know how else, uh, you know, thank God Elon Musk has purchased uh, Twitter. So free speech is back on Twitter. And now we can say what we want and we can mock these people and spread yeah. the truth. And we just need more of that. And then people, you know, ultimately um, people need to take what they know and, and take it to the uh, ballot box, right? Yeah. And vote these people out. Yeah, well, um, it's interesting. You know, one of Alinsky's rules was to attack individuals, not institutions. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because one of the ladies who was working with us, you know, questioning the different candidates for mayor in the city of Ottawa, I'll just tell you what the question was that she asked. First of all, the city of Ottawa's plan had enormous amount of wind power in it. It was 710 industrial wind turbines, you know, as tall as our Peace Tower, which is like Big Ben. And, uh, but they were trying to distance themselves from it because they realized that the immediate audience was not very much in favor of wind power. So one of our ladies went to the microphone and she read out what the leading candidate said. And then she read out parts of the actual plan. And then she said to her, well, did you vote for a, $60 billion plan without reading it first? <laughs> and of course, the, the woman was sort of flustered. She didn't know how to answer that because the actual member of the public knew more about the plan than the candidate. <laughs> so it strikes me that on all these issues, the public has to educate themselves. So when they go to the microphone and challenge the candidates or challenge the councillors or the mayor or the, or the state governor or whatever, that they actually know the answers better than the politicians. So education, that sounds like a really good starting point well, for people. Well, and then, you know, you mentioned Alinsky, and I think, uh, what was Alinsky? It was uh, personalize it. You have to take it right to them, and they're not going to like it. You know, they're going to turn the microphone off on you. But you, you've got to expose, you know, the, the lies or the, the ignorance, whatever it is, you need to expose it. I, mm -hmm. How else are we going to make progress with the truth? I mean, the truth has no value anymore unless we enforce it. Yeah. Unfortunately, there's no institution that has not been captured by the left. There's no institution. The media is dead. 
no one enforces it's, it's just up to us and mm-hmm. I, mean, I find it hard to believe i've spent all these years trying to do this i mean the truth is what has the truth is has made society what it is today given us the wealth you know fossil fuels have taken us from less than a billion people to over eight billion people in span of 200 years given us the highest standard of living and it's because you know, technology works, mm-hmm. science, yeah. science works, truth works, technology works. And the misery that, you know, people have a sense today that, uh, you know, society is falling apart is because, you know, we have, all, we have all these people who are operating on lies and ignorance in power. Um, they've captured all the political, all the important pieces, political pieces in society. And there's just, there's no truth anymore. So we, yeah. we need to enforce this. Well, yeah, and it strikes me that what parents should do is instead of letting their kids go through school without any question to the dogma they're being given, they should buy them a copy of Scare Pollution. <laughs> they, should put it, they should put it under the tree. You but know? do you know how uncomfortable it is for people to read that they've, they've been lied to all these years? I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's just, but, you, you know, but, you know, this the citizen movement. We you, saw you. Fair- you are a reformed environmentalist, right? Oh, no, I know. <laughs> so... So whatever that process was, we need to replicate that. Yeah. Well, I had to be actually informed that I was wrong and shown that I was wrong by a guy who was not going to be critical for me for being wrong. And I had to actually, you know, listen to what he was saying and also check into the other references and everything else. So, yeah, it strikes me that the first step that people should take to fight this, just like the climate scare, is to learn the basic information. And and I'm not kidding. I think your book is the right place to start because then they go to meetings and they say, why are you reducing particulate matter even more when it's not a threat? You know, go to the microphone and actually bring these things up. And of course, as you know, Steve, this is our project, our new project is called Climate Realism in Action, where we train activists. And, you know, we've got a real great sort of source of activists here in Canada, and we're going to find some in the U.S. too, I'm sure, because of the resistance to the COVID measures. And these people are used to fighting, you know, people involved in the Yellow Jackets movement out of France. One of the ladies that I was working with actually was there. And, uh, you know, they actually are strong, intelligent people. So those are the kinds of people we have to recruit for this as well. Because I think we can fight back because the facts are so glaringly obvious. Just to end off with an example, Steve, can you tell us about coal miners? Because I understand that they are often subjected to far worse particulate matter standards or far worse levels, and they don't have any greater problems health-wise. Yeah, so coal miners are exposed to extremely high levels. I mentioned earlier that the average level of particulate matter in the air today is less than 10. Uh, Coal miners could inhale 1,500 micrograms per cubic meter of air all day for a career, <clears throat> and that was considered safe. But I have even a better example. You know, EPA says that, you know, any, any uh, molecule of particulate matter can kill you uh, instantaneously. You know, uh, there are, you know, smoking, when you, when, you, when you smoke, you inhale particulate matter. Right. Take the sickest people on earth, they can smoke for years and not have any adverse effects from particulate matter. You can, people on oxygen, okay, I cite this in air pollution, in, in scare pollution. Uh, I, I'm not a smoker, I don't advise anyone to smoke, but, uh, and, and it's, it seems crazy to me <laughs> that there are people on oxygen that smoke, but these people can smoke for years. 
the biggest danger to them from smoking while being on oxygen is that they might set their oxygen on fire. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, but I have lots of great examples about this in scare pollution, real life examples of where these huge levels of particulate matter have no effect on it. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's crazy. <laughs> well, good. I encourage people really do look up that book. I, you know, I was noticing on the back there was one of the people who worked in the APA who was actually uh, promoting the book, saying that the scientists themselves didn't actually have confidence that the EPA standards didn't make any, you know, that made any sense. So, <laughs> so Steve, it's been great interviewing you today. We have another one of the EPA scare tactics, which makes absolutely no sense scientifically and is just doing nothing but increasing our prices and hurting us financially, and therefore in the long run, hurting our health. So this is Tom Harris signing out from the other side of the story.